Good afternoon, America. Welcome to the Inside Scoop from Washington. This is Mark Levine reporting live from the Center for American Progress. Leslie Marshall will be joining me for hour two and hour three, but you got me alone for the first hour. And uh, get out your textbooks, folks. Uh, pick up your pens. Get out your notepads. Class is in session as we begin the history of the Middle East, part two. If you heard me last week, I explained, uh, well, the history of the Middle East from the beginning of time to about World War One. I explained how Sunni and Shia Islam began and why uh, Muslims were fighting each other and fighting Christians and why Christians were fighting each other and basically all the horrible religious wars that took us about up to World War One. And then I explained how the British and the French won that war, dismantled the Ottoman Empire and took possession of a whole big mass of land in the Middle East. They actually, by the way, took control of most of Africa, too, by that time. Uh, and um, we were well on our way uh, through World War II when I had a caller uh, who I think blamed World War II on President Obama, which occurred a decade or two before he was born. So um, uh, that interruption kind of uh, uh, waylaid the show a bit. But uh, let's go back now to World War One. 100 years ago, 1918, the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One will be in just a few years. 100 years ago, World War One was raging. Anyway, England and France basically get the whole thing. Germany and Italy get a little bit, but after World War II, uh, England and France basically have control of all the areas of concern. And they have set up colonies throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, mostly to take advantage of the minerals and oil and other things found beneath the ground in these countries. Surely it was not to give anything to the people of these lands. And if you look at a map of the world, just following World War II, you'll find well, British South Africa and French West Africa and British East Africa and French North Africa and the Middle East split between British possessions and French possessions. Ironically, it was the loser of that war, the Ottoman Empire, later to become the country of Turkey, which became the only Muslim democracy in the Middle East. Isn't that a nice bit of irony? Because the states set up by the English and the French were there to serve the colonial interests of the English and French. And the British took some of the people who had helped them, some of the Arabs who had helped them in World War One, Lawrence of Arabia, if you've seen that uh, movie, is all about uh, Arab tribesmen that helped the British fight the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, in World War One, and set up their friends in Arabia. And the French set up their allies as well. Again, I refer you to the movie Casablanca <laughs> to, to look at French Morocco. So the English and the French are setting up various kingdoms. Uh, they're taking tribal leaders, but basically the ones that are friendly to the English and French, and they're dividing up the lines rather arbitrarily with more interest to the concerns of the English and the French than to the people themselves. And that means that a bunch of lines get drawn and a bunch of peoples get thrown together. And if you wonder why there's lots of wars to this day in the Middle East and in Africa, for that matter, it's because the lines really aren't based on tribal boundaries. In France, pretty much everyone in France speaks French, and people, every, pretty much everyone in Germany speaks German. Uh, in the Netherlands, they speak Dutch. There are counterexamples. Belgium is split between French areas and Dutch areas and a tiny German area. But in general, various peoples 
are split according to language, ethnicity, religion. Largely the difference between Ireland and England is based more on religion uh, and ethnicity than on language, since uh, most of the Irish speak English. But Europe has been relatively stable since World War II, largely because the boundaries make sense. French-speaking people live in France. German-speaking people live in Germany. Italian-speaking people live in Italy. Well, in the Middle East, they threw all bunches of people together. The same is true in Africa. And you'll find examples of uh, people that uh, you find Sunni leaders put in charge of Shia peoples. An example of that would be Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, He actually took over for the Sunni king installed by the British. Uh, There was a coup and he took over. But basically, Sunnis controlling Shias in Iraq. In in Syria, you have Shia leaders like Assad controlling Sunni populations. You have populations that don't get a state. That would be the Kurdish people living in uh, Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Iran and persecuted by all of them. And then you find uh, all kinds of states being created and promised and mixed in. Uh, The Jews were promised a state in Judea. Uh, and then uh, they, the British created the new country of Palestine. And they, they, then they cut it in half of the Jordan River. The eastern part of Palestine was for the Arabs. The western part of Palestine was for the Jews. Today, Arab East Palestine is known as Jordan. It's actually called Transjordan across the Jordan River. Completely a new creation and installed with a British leader, a, a, an Arab leader who was uh, uh, a, um, educated in Britain. Mostly he put there because he was kicked off the throne in Saudi Arabia, and so the British had to give him a new country. All pretty arbitrary. And so what happens in post-colonial states, and by the way, I include Africa, both Arab Africa in the north and black Africa in the south in this as well, is you find lines drawn not necessarily where people live. Throughout Africa, you'll find uh, various tribes, African tribes that have been there for millennia, Uh, but all mixed into one state rather than having their own state. And this is often a recipe for war. Again, it's not just true in Africa and the Middle East. You can also find it's true in Yugoslavia, where a bunch of Europeans of different religions and ethnicities were put together in one unitary state. In any case, uh, these lines are drawn. And what happens after World War II is these various dictators of Arab lands and Middle Eastern lands, uh, they... um, are corrupt. They mistreat their own people. In fact, the best examples of what came out of the British Middle, uh, Middle East, the British possessions, are uh, the th- well, the three countries that became democracies. Turkey, I already mentioned. India would be another. Again, they fought against the British, won their independence, and because they, they won their independence, ironically became a democracy rather than having an installed leader. And the other would be Israel, which again, uh, Palestine was promised to the Jews. They took back the promise and and the Jews had to fight to have the land that they have today. But in the rest of of the Middle East, you find installed dictators that largely serve colonial interests. Various kings and sheikhs and shah, which means king of Iran, installed by the British, helping uh, to get oil and so forth. So there's resentment obviously, against this colonialism. And the resentment is largely, as I mentioned last week, brought up in mosques, in religious places where people can gather. And in some of these states, you have Islamic groups basically fight off the colonial powers or the installed 
local leader of the colonial powers, and sometimes things become worse. Iran would be a classic example, where the Shah of Iran was bad and Khomeini was worse, the Ayatollah Khomeini. So throughout the Middle East, you find battles between secular Western-leading leaders and Islamic fundamentalists, and neither of whom has my sympathy, nor, I would argue, should you. You find uh, at least the secular leaders give women rights, allow women the right to drive, allow women uh, to not necessarily have to wear the hijab, the Muslim veil that covers their face, and certainly not a burqa. So in terms of women's rights, in terms of gay rights, in terms of having uh, some of those basic freedoms, uh, you'll find that the secular Western-leading dictators and kings are better than the Islamic fundamentalist dictators and kings. But they're all dictators and kings, and they're all corrupt. And you can go, and some are less corrupt than others. Jordan and Morocco come to mind. Some are more ruthless than others. Algeria, Syria uh, come to mind. Uh, but, but this is the basic dichotomy in the Middle East. And that really and, – and, and again, they, they, they change governments. There's various coups and all, but they don't change governments through democracy. And the people resent it. And because the West installed a lot of these governments, you find a lot of the anti-Western resentment that still exists today. Note that this is not Islamic, but – because there is anti-Western resentment and because that resentment is justified and because the only place they can talk about it is within their mosques, well, you can see why it, it creates an Islamic tinge, particularly when Islam is the native religion of the group, of most of the group, and the West is seen as outsiders. But here's where the story gets interesting. You see, I have a bone to pick with uh, conservatives who ignore the colonial influence, who ignore the reason why these people hate the West, to ignore this English and French history that I've been telling you about, because they're ignoring this vast part of history. But I also have a bone to pick with some liberals who seem to suggest that uh, none of this is religious, that none of this comes from uh, the peoples themselves, that this is just a, a group of terrorists who have no connection to the people. Now, the reason why these terrorists have support is largely because they use these tropes, these memes, these ideas, they throw in a little bit of Islam with their wish for terrorist control and do so as an anti-Western thing, and that therefore they get a lot of support. I guarantee you ISIS would have no support today if it hadn't been for the mistreatment of Shia Iraqi leaders to the Sunni Iraqi population, or between the Shia dictator of Syria, Assad, massacring this majority Sunni population of Syria. When you get massacred and you see all your family dying before your eyes, you'll support anything to make it stop, including the ridiculous band of thugs, dangerous, as well as ridiculous band of thugs, known as ISIS. So, when the Arab Spring came, when a fruit vendor in Tunisia set himself on fire to protest the corruption of the Tunisian dictatorship. I had some hope. I came on this stage and I said, this is the first hope I've seen in the Middle East in a very long time. Because the people of Tunisia rising up, and later on the people of Libya, the people of Syria, there were, there were uprisings in Iran, Saudi Arabia to a small extent, Bahrain, 
all throughout the Middle East. Even Algeria had some for a little while. Uh, Egypt, certainly. All these places, there were people who were professing neither the secular Western dictatorships that we've all supported. And we all know who they are, right? This Saudi Arabia today would be the classic example. Egypt in the past. Uh, countries like Libya and Iraq, ironically, Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein, we used to support when they were on our side. And then we took away the support when they weren't on our side. When they were on our side, we kept quiet about the dictatorship aspects, just like we keep quiet about Saudi Arabian dictatorship or Bahrain dictatorship. And Bahrain has the fifth U.S. fleet. But when they turned against U.S. interests, suddenly we pointed out how ruthless Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi were and are. But this was a group, the Arab Spring, that was neither group, neither the Western secular dictators, nor the Islamic fundamentalist radicals who were rising up against them. This was a third group. This was the mass of the people. This was ordinary shopkeepers and students and intellectuals fighting for democracy not on Western terms, but simply a right to choose their own government. Not on Islamic terms, but freedom for women and, and for men, equality for all. It was an exciting time. And in my humble opinion, and this is where some Democrats may get mad at me, in my humble opinion, President Obama blew the moment. So just as I'm mad at conservatives who defend colonialism, who defended our invasion of Iraq... I do think President Obama missed his chance, and I'll explain why when I come back. If you want to call in, 888-653-7543. Back after this. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. This is Mark Levine giving the history of the Middle East in a very short period of time. If you're not up on it, listen in, take out your notebooks, get out your pens, and feel free to call me at 886-53-7543 with any questions. Basically, we went up uh, to the Arab Spring just a few years ago when we found for the first time really in a century or longer – or perhaps in human history, the people of the Middle East are actually rising up on their own without their leaders, without leaders from Western dictatorships, without leaders from Islamic fundamentalists or the Muslim Brotherhood. They're just rising up themselves. A fruit vendor in Tunisia is tired of corruption. He doesn't want religious war. He just wants to sell his fruit and make a living. And when he set himself on fire, poured gasoline over himself, he had no idea that in his dying, horrible death, he would set aflame the Middle East. But it was a good flame. It was a hopeful flame. It was more hopeful than other flames in the Middle East. And it spread from country to country. And this is where I criticize President Obama for not seeing the historic nature of that flame. In Iran, there was a green revolution. The people rose up against, at this time, not the Western dictator, but the Islamic fundamentalist dictator that ruled and ruined their lives, had they succeeded in the Green Revolution in 2009, 2010, there would be no question of Iran developing a nuclear weapon today. Iran could become a peaceful, powerful, democratic nation, an ally of the West, and a democracy. Wow. Obama really missed his chance. He really seemed to have vacillated between supporting these movements and supporting the various dictators. And in this way, I think President Obama's, this may shock you here, 
I think his foreign policy is quite similar to that of another president. That president, George H.W. Bush. Do you remember the foreign policy of George Bush Sr.? Very few people do. It was based on the same foreign policy, I should say, as Franklin Roosevelt or uh, Ronald Reagan, for that matter. It's not a Democratic or Republican thing. It's the idea that we support dictators as long as they support American interests. Another name for that is realpolitik. And realpolitik means we don't really look too closely as to whether our allies are Democrats or dictators. As long as they support American interests, we're fine with it. And I remember when Ronald Reagan supported dictators in Central America to keep out the communists, uh, and he supported certainly Saudi Arabia and, and Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and George Bush Sr. largely did the same, I would argue that's Obama's foreign policy. It's not about protecting people. You can see he's done nothing to, to stop the massacres of people in Syria, or for that matter, the, the people that are being killed in Ukraine. His goal is to have stability. It's And I understand that goal. It's something that they teach in various foreign policy schools. But my argument is, with realpolitik, real politics, is that it inherently promotes instability. Because when you support a dictator who persecutes his own people, at the end of the day, that's an inherently unstable government. And I think President Obama is finding out that just as George Bush Jr.'s invasion of Iraq led to ISIS... Some of his policies did so, too. I'll explain when I get back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the show. This is Mark Levine. Give you the inside scoop. Coming up in the second hour, Leslie Marshall and I are going to talk about marijuana laws, and particularly the marijuana law in D.C., which the federal government, particularly the Republicans in Congress. Oh, that's hour three. Oh, so XLE Popline is hour two. Okay, well, that's uh, producer Mark Romaldi, and he tells me what I'm talking about. So there you go. Uh, but not the first hour. The first hour, I decide what to talk about. So, yeah, we're going to talk about um, uh, ISIS and uh, and uh, the XLE pipeline. In the third hour, we're going to talk about D.C. and marijuana laws. But in the first hour, the reason why I'm giving you this long-winded history of the Middle East is because I think it's very important to understand how we got here. Because I hear... President Obama talk about how brutal ISIS is, which is true, and Republicans talk about how brutal ISIS is, which is true, and then the Republicans say that Obama hasn't called them brutal, which is false, because he certainly has, but the Republicans say that Obama doesn't recognize the Islamic nature of ISIS, and Obama says this is not a war against Islam, the way that George Bush and Dick Cheney said, and they're all missing the point. We need to understand who ISIS is. We understand who the enemy is and what the people are fighting for. Because it's a very small number of ISIS that really have this radical, crazy, Islamic, radical Islamic, because it's not even Islamic, this, this terrorist Islam ideology. If there weren't such troubles and travails in the Middle East, they would have no support. So we need to know where they come from and why people are joining them if, and why we should fight them. I mean, after all, there's going to be a military 
uh, authorization bill going through Congress this month, maybe next month. And who are these people we're fighting? Well, let's quickly fast forward. I've explained how the Arab dictators got there and why they rule people that aren't necessarily their people. And by the way, if the people, this is something, a good point that Marco Maldi brought up in the break. If the people had drawn the lines themselves, I think they could have given up on some tribal lands. If the Kurds, for example, had a state, it might not be on all of historic Kurdistan. It might only be part of historic Kurdistan, but if they agreed to it and drew the lines themselves, I think they could be happy with limited borders. Germany, having lost World War II, lost a third of Germany. The entire eastern third of Germany became Poland. And yet you don't find many Germans today arguing to get back one third of Germany, which is today occupied by Poland. They gave it up. The Germans left. A completely German city named Kaliningrad that had been German and Prussian for hundreds of years became the Russian city of Konigsberg. All the Germans were either murdered or left. It's now a Russian city. If the Arabs of Palestine had accepted the deal that divided up a Jewish state and an Arab state, there would be no Israeli-Arab conflict, no Israeli-Palestinian conflict to this day. But they didn't accept it, and there was a war. So when people draw the boundaries themselves, they can often live even with not having all the territory that they want. But they didn't draw those boundaries. They were arbitrarily drawn. And so you found a country like Syria with a Shia leader in Assad who controls a country that's 80% Sunni, 10% Christian. You find in Iraq exactly the reverse. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni Muslim controlling a country that was majority Shia. Well, you think there'd be a simple solution. Just say to Assad, you own Iraq, and say to Saddam Hussein, you own Syria, and then at least the dictators are from the same people as the people, and they oppress their own. <laughs> Maybe that would have been a solution, ridiculous as it sounds. But there's a lot of resentment when there's a dictatorship running your lives. That was true in Tunisia and Libya and Egypt, even though the dictators there were of the same people. In Egypt, there were Sunni population ruled by a Sunni dictator. The same is true in Libya. The same is true in Tunisia and Algeria. But somehow when it's a dictator of a foreign tribe, of a foreign people, of a foreign religion, that hurts even worse. And the reason it hurts worse is because that minority wants to keep the dictator in power to protect themselves. Imagine you're a Shia Muslim in Syria and 80% of the population is Sunni. But you're kept in power and you're given special rights precisely because you're Shia. Now when the population wants to overthrow the dictator and uh, you're afraid that, well, the Sunnis will take control and you'll be relegated to second-class status. The exact opposite is true in Iraq. The Sunni dictator, Saddam Hussein, controlled the Shia, majority Shia population in, in Iraq. They were in control, and when the United States foolishly decided to take Saddam Hussein out of power, well, now the Sunnis, a minority in Iraq, fear being controlled by the Shia, and the new Iraqi government largely proved that to be the case when they kicked the Sunnis out of government, created an entirely Shia army, and let it be run pretty much by the biggest Shia country next door named Iran. So you can see there are real resentments here, justified resentments. The Sunnis of Iraq used to control the whole country. Now they're second-class citizens 
mistreated by the Iraqi government. Meanwhile, the Sunnis in Syria have it even worse than the Shias in, in Iraq because they're being murdered by their Shia dictator, Bashar al-Assad, when they rise up again like the guy in Tunisia and simply want a democracy, simply want a free country. And we didn't support those people either. We didn't support the uprising against the Shia dictators in Iran. We didn't support the uprising in, in Syria. We did support it in Libya, by the way. And I'm glad we did. Even though Libya, you could say, is a mess, it's actually less of a mess than Syria and Iraq. The most successful place, by the way, is where we didn't get involved, is Tunisia, which I think will finally end up being the only democracy of the Arab Spring, largely because the people of Tunis, it's, it's mostly a city-state. Most of the people there live in this one cosmopolitan city, Tunis, where the people are very well-educated, very secular, and there is the, most, the best chance, I think, for the Arab Spring to succeed. Libya is probably second. But the point is, if you are a Sunni in Syria, your family has been massacred by Assad. Whether or not you were in the initial revolution, the dictator, the Shia dictator Assad, supported by Iran, supported by Hezbollah, a terrorist group supported by Russia, has been bombing your house. Dropping not just little bombs, but barrel bombs. And I'm told, by the way, that barrel bombs are not the size of barrels. They're the size of Dimsty dumpsters. Imagine Dimsty dumpsters. That's right. Imagine Dimsty dumpsters coming out of a plane every day, flattening your neighborhood because the leader of your country wants all the Sunnis gone, and Sunnis are 80% of the country. And you fight and you fight, and nobody helps you. The Free Syrian Army is formed. The West looks the other way. President Obama says, yeah, I, I hope you succeed. Does nothing to help you. That's the Sunnis in Syria. The Sunnis in Iraq, well, they used to run the place along with Saddam Hussein. Then the Shia government, again put in place by the United States, by George Bush, because the Shias are majority, so they get to vote. But see... The, best, the thing about a democracy, what, you know what makes it work? It's not majority rule. People think democracy is all about majority rule. It's not. They had majority rule in Alabama and Jim Crow in the 1960s. The whites were the majority of Alabama and Mississippi. Majority rule does not make a democracy. What makes a democracy is majority rule with minority rights. The rights of a minority to practice their culture, their religion, their language, their ethnicity, whatever it is. To have a share in the government, even if they don't control the government. That's what makes for a stable democracy. And this, what happened in Syria is the majority Sunnis were left out. And the minority Sunnis in Iraq, who used to run the place, were left out by the corrupt government of Iraq that basically just rewarded the Shias. So you can see why the Sunnis are angry. In Iraq, they used to be in control and now corrupt Shias are controlling their lives, and in fact Shia militias sent by Iran are murdering their families. And in Syria, they've had a nice stable dictatorship, secular dictatorship for decades, and now the leader is basically burning down your homes. Syria, the, Assad has murdered 200,000 people. There are 7 million refugees. That's one-third of the country is now a refugee. So you're angry. You turn to the West. The West says, uh, uh, you fight your own battles. You have no support. And you're dying. 
And then comes this ridiculous, brutal, dangerous terrorist group that proclaims itself the Islamic Caliphate, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. You know they're ridiculous. You're not prejudiced. You don't support the murder of Yazidis and Christians and Jews and Shia. You don't support the murder of Shia. You just want to live your own life. But you can't live your own life because you're being bombed and massacred and destroyed in Syria. And in Iraq, you're not allowed to run your own affairs. So you're like, you know what? These people, they're crazy. They're dangerous. But heck, they got to be better than the status quo. That's actually what business leaders said about the Nazis. That's what they said about Adolf Hitler. They said, you know, we know Hitler's crazy. We know he's racist. We know he's he's dangerous. But you know what? He can't. He's got to be better than the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic and the Great Depression that Germany's suffering. Maybe he'll bring us our glory back. Let's try Hitler. And they're saying, let's try ISIS. And while I have zero sympathy for ISIS, I understand why people are joining in the ranks. And until we resolve the underlying problems in the Middle East, giving everyone a say in government, redrawing the lines, giving the Kurds a country, giving the Sunnis, separate Iraq. I talked with Joe Biden about this several years ago. Separate Iraq. Make a Sunni Iraq and a Shia Iraq. Let the Sunnis have their own state in Iraq. No, it won't be an Islamic state, but they they should have their own state. Let the Kurds have their own state. Help the Syrian people defeat their dictator. And support for ISIS will wither away. So what conservatives argue that, oh, well, you know, ISIS has has all this support. It does, but not for the reasons they think. Not because the people of the region support the brutal, murderous tactics of ISIS. But because they're desperate and they're looking for any way out they can. So us fighting ISIS alone and not fighting Assad and not requiring the Iraqi government to to help them and not offering them a separate state but a democratic state, how are we helping the problem? Yeah, we're we're, we're going after some bad people. ISIS is – they're terrible, awful, disgusting people. But if we don't deal with the underlying situation, I fear we're not helping the situation at all. To understand what's going on in the Middle East, you have to understand the history of the Middle East. And they're not joining up with ISIS because they hate our freedom or because they hate Christians. Yeah, the leaders do. The leaders are mad. The leaders are, yes, crazy religious fanatics. But their support comes from people who've just had enough. And if we fight ISIS without fighting Assad, without fighting Iran, without fighting the corrupt Iraqi Shia dictatorship that we put in power under George Bush, we're never, ever going to resolve anything. If we only look to protect the West from ISIS, we're not looking at the real problems in the Middle East. So that's my take, and it's my criticism. i got to tell you, uh, as you know, of President Obama and George W. Bush and George Bush Sr., it's uh, this whole realpolitik school. I believe in looking out for the needs of the people. I believe in democracy. Call me old-fashioned. I don't think it's liberal or conservative. It's just a real belief in freedom. Okay, got a few minutes left, and I'm happy to take Mike from Madison, Wisconsin's call on line four. Hey, Mike, how are you? Well, 
Well, not too bad, except I was kind of frightened. I thought you were describing Wisconsin to a T. And, <laughs> I didn't know there was religious wars in Wisconsin, are there? Well, Scott Walker claims to be a, a Christian. He's the son of a preacher. Right. Um, but he attacks teachers. And I think I know the correlation there is that Jesus was a great teacher. So you tell me what we have here. <laughs> it's really, really bad. I mean, I was in the Capitol last night, and there was nobody there for right to work, only those that spoke against it. And people came from other parts of the country, business people, making non-political statements saying this is just horrible. And I'm, I'm sorry, but what Scott Walker's doing is the exact same thing that Hitler did in a different fashion or in a different way without without violence to this point, well, I, I guarantee you, if we keep fighting in Wisconsin, um, we're going to be considered, uh, you know, a, a threat to Here's the thing, Mike. I, I, we don't have to call Scott Walker Hitler to recognize that he's doing some real bad things to working people in Wisconsin. And what well, I don't understand... What, it's not that... I'm sorry, Mark. I'm not trying to cross that line. It's actually that they actually have crossed that line because I don't like making references to it. I'm actually of German heritage, and I realized that I probably would have been shot in the back of the head if I wasn't forced to do what was yeah, going on. Yeah, here's the thing, here's the thing Mike. And I, only, I only got about a minute left, but I, I firmly oppose what Scott Walker did in Wisconsin. In fact, you can go back to some of my old uh, shows. Mark, Look up MarkLivingTalk.com. You will find I defended the unions. I defended the people protesting in Madison. I defended the legislatures, legislators who walked out uh, entirely on your side. But I, I do resist comparing anyone to Hitler unless they, they committed mass murder, simply because I think it, it, people don't listen. First of all, it's not true. He's a bad guy. But he's not Hitler. And number two, people stop listening to the real concerns we have about Scott Walker, uh, the real harm he's doing to working people, because you, you've, made, you've made a comparison that, that took it a little far. But uh, I do appreciate your call. I appreciate you giving me your point of view. And I am afraid of Scott Walker, not Hitler style afraid, but afraid of this whole idea that working people should not have a voice. I mean, to take away collective bargaining, as he did in Wisconsin, to actually say that unions can't even speak, that's pretty extreme. Not Hitler extreme, but pretty damn extreme.